Luke 5, starting at uh, verse 33. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so did the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for he says the old is better. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so and his hand was completely restored. But they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Well, let's uh, pray. Gracious Father, thanks so much for giving us your word. Help us by your spirit to be humble and contrite of heart and help us to, in understanding more of Jesus, to love him, to trust him, to serve him more. And we pray in his name. Amen. 498 years ago yesterday, Martin Luther lit a fire. It was a fire that, it was a spiritual fire which spread across Europe and changed the lives of millions. On October the 31st, that was yesterday, but in uh, in 1517, the German monk nailed a document to the uh, door of the church at Wittenberg Castle in Germany. Uh, they, it was a document containing 95 theses or 95 complaints against the doctrines and the practices of the church. 
uh, in two years we'll be celebrating the half millennial anniversary looking forward to that one but uh, in those days there were only two major branches of the Christian church there was the Eastern Church the, the Orthodox Church there was the Western Church the church which is the Church of Rome the, the Catholic Church and over the centuries the Catholic Church had become very worldly taking the form of an empire with the uh, the bishops as princes with the Pope as Emperor and based in Rome the gospel had become buried under a mountain of money prestige and power and the Word of God was not available to people in in a language that they understood and so therefore uh, ignorance was rife false teaching was rife and the truth about salvation in Jesus was not available to the vast majority of people in Europe the church taught that the way to get to heaven was through ceremonies through rituals and through paying money which was a great money spinner for the church and uh, paid for a lot of the uh, monumental buildings that you'll see if you go to Rome today as a tourist. Uh, the church became rich at the expense of peasants. Luther, however, could read the Latin Bible. And in so doing, he found relief from the guilt, the burden of his sin, as he was studying and was indeed lecturing uh, at the university on Paul's letter to the church in, ironically, Rome. In publishing his complaints, Luther did not intend to uh, form a breakaway church. Uh, he had hoped that church leadership would listen to him and would, would make changes. However, as the gospel spread and as many thousands of men and women and boys and girls found salvation in Christ, Luther found that he came into conflict with the most powerful man on the planet. And that, of course, was the Pope. The religious leaders put him on trial, uh, on trial for his life. For the gospel was incompatible with the teachings of the church. Uh, the gospel threatened the hold which the religious leaders had on the lives of people. Their wealth, their prestige, their power was now at risk. Now, uh, looking back on this 500 years, almost 500 years later, uh, we, in, in a hindsight, you can see that it was obvious that the religious elite were, were bound to persecute Luther and others who were preaching the gospel at the time because that's how religious people react to the gospel, isn't it? Uh, we, we know that throughout history. We know that in the scriptures that those who uh, preached the gospel uh, and the prophets of the Old Testament uh, well, it's, it's, it's often a tough gig. Uh, and isn't it the way that they treated Jesus as well? 
We started to see that last week in uh, Luke chapter 5, you might recall. Because as word began to spread about Jesus, he caught the attention of the Pharisees. But it wasn't just the Pharisees. Uh, when Jesus healed the, the paralytic, the man who, was, uh, who we just sung about, actually, who was, you know, down th- came down through the, uh, the roof, uh, when he called the tax collector, it was the Pharisees and, quote, the teachers of the law who took interest in him. Uh, the teachers of the law. Uh, these were the scribes. Sometimes they're referred to as the scribes. These were men who meticulously um, copied the scriptures, um, preserved the scriptures. They became experts in the scriptures. They became experts in the law of Moses. And uh, as their role developed, they became the interpreters of the law of Moses. And they became uh, those who taught others the law. And so the fact that now the lawyers have turned up uh, in the crowds that were surrounding Jesus is actually significant. It's, it's, it's cranking up the, uh, the tension. It's, it's raising the, the ante. Um, last Sunday in uh, chapter 5, verse 30, the, the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law challenged Jesus, you might recall, because they were eating with, with tax collectors and with sinners. And uh, I guess when they meant sinners, well, that's anyone who would eat with a tax collector. <laughs> uh, it would have to be a sinner. But now, in uh, chapter 5, verse 33, they have another go at Jesus. Let me just read that for us to, reflect, to refresh our memories. In verse 33, they said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Now, this is not a neutral statement, is it? Uh, this is actually a criticism. That, what they're saying is that, look, you know, people who are truly righteous, they fast. But your people... <coughs> You sneeze. <laughs> but you people, you know, while everyone else is fasting, you people, you just go on eating and drinking and so on. And so it's a criticism, isn't it? Uh, now, let's, have a, let's examine that criticism. Let's see how it stands up to scrutiny. Because what does it mean to fast? Well, to fast means... To, to go without food and in the Bible uh, it is to go without food for a godly purpose and in actual fact the law of Moses only required God's people to fast on one day of every year and that was the day of atonement so there's an interesting fact um, however people would fast at other times as well but the question is, why? Why fast? What, what, what benefit is there? What reason is there for fasting? Uh, in the Old Testament, godly people would fast when things were not going well. Uh, typically, when, when Israel had been defeated, uh, when Israel was 
was being oppressed by her enemies, uh, people would fast. And it was an expression of grief. It was an expression of, of grief. It was an expression of dissatisfaction with the present as God's people would, would cry out to God, pleading with God to take action, to do something to deliver them. So fasting expressed both grief and hope. It was, fasting would be coupled with prayer as people would pray that God would act to change the disastrous situation that they found themselves in. But now, that which had been hoped for, uh, the great promise that God, their deliverer, would, would dwell amongst his people, well, it's now fulfilled. It's now fulfilled in Jesus. So you remember, you remember the old man Simeon? You know, at the, he was at the temple when Jesus was a baby and they brought Jesus to the temple. And when Simeon uh, saw the baby Jesus, he prayed, didn't he? And he prayed this prayer. He said, Sovereign Lord, now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Uh, Jesus at the synagogue in Nazareth, and they, they pull out the Isaiah scroll, and he reads from, from Isaiah, and he announces that Isaiah is now fulfilled, that the good news is preached to the poor, that the blind see, that the captives are released, the year of the Lord's favour is proclaimed. And now, as we saw last week, lepers are being cleansed. Demons are being driven out. The sick are being healed. Tax collectors are, re tax collectors are repenting. Tax collectors are repenting. The cry of Israel, uh, expressed through fasting and prayer has now been granted in the coming of Jesus. So, is there any need to fast? No. The time for fasting is over. Now, in the Old Testament, the, um, the Old Testament has various images of the relationship that exists between God and his people. And one of those images is the marriage, is the, is the marriage image, where God is the is the husband and uh, Israel is the bride. And most picturesquely, uh, that is uh, shown in the ministry of the prophet Hosea, who became a living sermon illustration of it when the Lord told him to go and marry a wayward woman, uh, Goma, and uh, that would symbolise the wayward relationship that uh, Israel has with her husband, uh, God. But... Uh, there's this picture of the husband and the bride. And so in verse 34, Jesus launches a question of his own right back in the direction of the Pharisees. Have a look at verse 34. In verse 34, Jesus answered, uh, Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. Have you ever been to a wedding where there's been no food? Be a bit disappointing, wouldn't it? 
course not. No, wedding's not, you know, it's not the time for you know, going on a diet. That's the time for, for feasting. In, in some cultures, the feasting goes on for days and days and days. It's a time for celebration. Well, Jesus is saying that the groom has arrived. This is no time for fasting. This is now the time for feasting. Although, he does say that there will be a time when his disciples will fast. And uh, that is a, uh, a, a little hint of what would happen when he goes to the cross. Now, you might remember Luke 18. Uh, Jesus was with a group of people who were described as being uh, confident in their own self-righteousness and who looked down their nose at others. Well, the Bible doesn't actually say they looked down their nose at others, but you know, uh, they were confident in their own self-righteousness and they looked down on other people. So Jesus tells us, tells a story uh, about uh, two men. One's a, uh, one's a Pharisee, the other's a tax collector. They go to the temple one day to pray and when the Pharisee prays, uh, he prays about himself and he says, thank you God, thank you for me. Thank you that I'm not like other people, like you know, other men who are robbers and evildoers and adulterers and, and thank you that I'm not like this tax collector who's praying next to me uh, because I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all my money. Thank you God that I am like that. Um, he says he fasts twice a week. Why is he fasting? It doesn't seem to have very much to do with grief, does it? It doesn't seem to have very much to do with, uh, with begging for, for God to act, for God to bring salvation. It seems to have a little bit more to do with pride and uh, you know, making him feel like he's good enough for God or at least better than the fellow sitting next to him. Whereas the tax collector, uh, he simply, he couldn't even look up. You know, he just... He just cried out, Lord, have mercy on me, uh, a sinner. Now, Jesus has not come in order to amend or improve or develop the religion of his day, a religion which had accumulated uh, many laws and traditions which people were expected to obey, to obey in order to be right with God. He didn't come to just change Judaism. No, Jesus actually cuts through all of that. He strips it away, he peels it back because he brings God's people back to the promises of God, the promises that God has made to Abraham, to Moses, to David, through all of the prophets, the promises which are actually fulfilled in him. Many years ago, uh, I served in a church for a while where the gospel, uh, to my knowledge, had not been preached for many years, um, more than a decade, just less than two decades. 
uh, that the gospel had not been preached on a regular basis. Uh, that was a pretty unhealthy church, actually. Uh, it had become a, uh, a religious club, uh, a religious club with, with ceremonies, with committees, with property, with positions. Uh, as myself and others started to preach the gospel, where we preached about sin and judgment and the work of Christ on the cross and faith and repentance, as we preached the gospel, uh, it started to get interesting. And there was a, an, a, an incompatibility. But uh, wonderfully and thankfully, there was a handful of people who in that two-year period were, understood the gospel for the first time in their lives put their trust in Jesus and were saved. But there were others who were a little bit less enthusiastic than that, if I can put it mildly. And that's because we were preaching the gospel. Well, Jesus actually is the gospel. And so the opposition which Jesus faced uh, is very, very clear. Uh, in verses 36 through to 39, he describes the, the conflict caused by this incompatibility with two illustrations. Um, first of all, he talks about, I don't know anything about sewing, by the way. I noticed I've got a patch that's been sewn onto my shirt here today. I noticed that as I was ironing it. And, um, and I didn't put the patch there. I don't know how to put patches on shirts. But... Um, from what the point that Jesus is making here is that if you if you've got some clothing which needs patching if you use a patch from new unshrunk fabric then it won't work because uh, if you put the new unshrunk unshrunk fabric onto a item of clothing that's already been shrunk because it's old then when you wash the clothing uh, the patch will tear away um, because they're just not compatible. Now, I don't know how that goes with modern fabrics and so on, but that's the point that Jesus is making, the incompatibility. Or secondly, in those days, they didn't have your two-litre wine casks that we use these days. They stored wine in goat skins, which had been processed and had been stitched up. They'd been sewn. And as the wine fermented and expanded, the new goat skin would expand with it. Um, over time, the goat skin would become stretched as far as it was going to stretch, and as it got older, it would become brittle, but that would be okay because the wine in it was not fermenting anymore. It was old wine in an old wine skin. However, if you, filled an, if you emptied the old wineskin and you filled the old wineskin with new wine, which was still fermenting, uh, then the brittle skin would not stretch any further and as the wine expanded, what's going to happen to the wineskin? It would, it would burst, wouldn't it? Uh, and the reason is because uh, new wine in an old wineskin, not compatible. 
You can't patch Jesus onto the old cloth of the Pharisees. You can't contain Jesus in their ceremonies and their rituals and their traditions because their religion is simply incompatible with the presence of God. Which is actually not new. Uh, it, it's what the scriptures have always been about. But it was new to them. And so there is this incompatibility which leads to conflict. In fact, in verse 39, they won't want it. The old, they say, is better. They love religion with its laws, with its traditions, with the prestige that it gives them, but they don't want Jesus. So the lawyers are now on the job and they are now monitoring every move of Jesus and the Sabbath day was a great opportunity to trip him up, to catch him out. But as we thought about the meaning of fasting, let's think for a moment about the meaning and the purpose of the Sabbath. Now, it's obvious, isn't it, what the Sabbath is, is about? Uh, you take a day off work. That's what you do on the Sabbath, don't you? You take a day off work so that you can rest. Uh, that is, uh, you don't go and spend y your day in the office. Uh, you don't open up your shop and start doing business or or however it is that you earn your income, what is the Sabbath? You don't work. You rest. Simple as that, in one sense. And in so doing, uh, by, we express our trust in God. We express the fact that we don't have to work seven days a week, 52 weeks of the year, non-stop that God will actually provide for us uh, so we can take a day off work and rest. Now that is, that's common sense, isn't it? Makes perfect sense. What, what, is a, what is a day off? Well, you don't work. However, the religious leaders had drawn up a list of 39 activities which were defined as work and were proscribed uh, from being able to be done on the Sabbath. Uh, I won't read all 39 of the activities for you. Happy to provide you with a list later on if you're interested. But uh, here's a couple of good ones. Uh, <clears throat> if you write two or more letters on the Sabbath, then that's work. You've breached the Sabbath. If you erase two or more letters on the Sabbath, then you've worked. That's work. One letter, that would be fine, but not two. Um, <clears throat> uh, kindling a fire on the Sabbath. Well, that's, you can't do that because that's work. Which explains, by the way, why some Jews today will not drive their cars on the Sabbath. Because when you get in the car, you, you switch on the ignition switch, don't you? What switch is it? It's the ignition switch. It ignites a fire. And so that's classified as, as, uh, as building a fire. Uh, on the Sabbath and so you walk to the synagogue rather than drive your car no matter what the weather's like. On the farm, things such as reaping, threshing and winnowing 
<coughs> amongst other things like harvesting and so on, they were considered to be prohibited work. And that makes sense, don't you think? Uh, that makes sense if your job description is, I am a farmer. I'm a farmer. That would make sense. But have a look in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. <coughs> One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, and this is a bit creepy, isn't it, what the Pharisees were stalking them as they're following them. And some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, the law of Moses did allow people to walk through someone else's grain field and, and pick grain and eat it. Um, <clears throat> that was just, you know, <clears throat> someone actually grabbing a snack as they're going along because they're hungry. You're allowed to do it in court. It's not theft. If you turn up at someone's grain field and you've got your sickle and you start, start harvesting, then no, that's, that's theft. You're not allowed to do that. But here, the Pharisees would be thinking plucking equals reaping. Uh, rubbing, well, that equals threshing. And eating the kernel, well, that means that you'd you'd had to throw away the husk and that equals winnowing. And what day is it? It's the Sabbath. Why are you doing that which is unlawful on the Sabbath? They think they've got him. Well, Jesus turns to them and says, actually, um, have you guys read your Bibles lately? <laughs> You don't know the scriptures. Remember David? Remember when David was a fugitive? He was running away from Saul because Saul was pursuing him and wanted to kill him. And David was with some of his companions and they were hungry and they turned up to where the priest was and the priest had some bread which according to the law of Moses had been consecrated for eating by priests and the priest actually gave David and his companions the bread and they ate it. Do you remember that? Would you say that that was a breach of the law of Moses? What do you teachers of the law think about that one? Well, David wasn't condemned for that. No, it's called loving your neighbour, which maybe you guys have forgotten about. But then in, chapter six, in verses 6 through to 10, uh, again it's the Sabbath, on, on another Sabbath, and Jesus this time is, is teaching in, in a synagogue and there's a man in the synagogue who's, who's got a hand which is shriveled. Now, I don't know what a shriveled hand is like, some sickness of some deformity. Um, yes, uh, you know, we can imagine someone whose hand's buckled up with arthritis, whatever. By the way, which hand is it that's shriveled? It tells us, doesn't it? Luke, Luke mentions it. What, which hand is it? It's, the, it's his right hand. It's the hand which the majority of us uh, use for work. And so if you can't use your right hand, if you can't work properly, then the economic and the social implications of that. We don't know the suffering that this man had endured, but here he is, and the religious leaders, 
They don't particularly care about the man. Uh, they are just ready to pounce. Verse 7. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Now, according to their traditions, uh, a doctor was able to attend to someone on the Sabbath, but only in the case where it was a life-threatening situation. Clearly, this is not a life-threatening situation. But Jesus knew that they were ready to pounce. And far from backing off, what does he do? He provokes. He confronts the situation. He addresses the man and he gets the man to, he said, come on up the front here. He gets the man in full view of everyone and he says to the man, stretch out your hand and he stretches out his hand and as he does so, he's healed. The hand is fine. The hand can be used again. And friends, what better day for this man to be healed than on the day of rest, than on the Sabbath? For what is the Sabbath? It means to rest. And we express that with, with a day off work each week, but that's not the sum total of it because it, it actually points to a greater rest. A rest where there is no need for God's people to be mourning and fasting. A rest which we rejoice in because God has acted to, to restore not just a hand but to restore fallen humanity to reverse the curse of sin with all its effects. Remember last week, the um, paralysed man was released down through the, through the roof and uh, is at the feet of Jesus and Jesus says to him, uh, uh, my son, your, your sins are forgiven and the religious leaders are going, oh, that's blasphemy. And Jesus says, so that you will know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, and he turns to the paralysed man and says, stand up, take your mat and walk home. The son, and he does. The Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Well, here, if you have a look in verse 5, Jesus declares that the Son of Man is actually the Lord of the Sabbath. He fulfills the Sabbath. He determines the Sabbath because he actually is the Sabbath. Martin Luther was a man who was very, very deeply burdened by the, the guilt of his sin. And as religious as he was, as an Augustinian monk, he found absolutely zero relief in the rituals and the ceremonies and the laws of the religious, of, of the church. But when he discovered the gospel, he actually experienced profound rest. Rest for his soul. It 
the same for us. By trusting in Christ's death, we experience something which religious regulations and rituals and ceremonies and traditions can simply never deliver. Jesus once said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Rest for your souls. Rest which begins now when we put our trust in Jesus. A rest which we can look forward to in its fullness when as we stand firm for the gospel throughout this life, according to Hebrews 4, we enter into God's eternal rest, the heavenly rest. When Jesus healed the man with the shriveled hand, the religious leaders did not rejoice. They weren't happy about it. Luke tells us that they were furious and they started to now plot what they might do to get rid of Jesus. And so, expect opposition, friends. Uh, When we teach and when we share and when we talk to other people about the gospel, especially opposition from those who love religion when they should actually be loving Jesus. And pray for them. Pray that in God's mercy that they too might come to know the one who is the Lord of the Sabbath and find true rest for their souls. It's interesting as we uh, look further in the Gospels that there are actually some Pharisees who turn to Jesus and put their trust in him. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we want to thank you for Jesus who is the Lord of the Sabbath. Father, we thank you that in him we find rest for our souls. We thank you that because of his work that we can rest with you forever and ever and ever. Father, we pray that you would strip us of all religious pride. Help us, Father God, to not be trusting in our own good works, which are as dirty rags in your sight, but trusting purely in the shed blood of Jesus on our behalf. Thank you, Father God, that no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, that we can find the forgiveness and the rest and the eternal hope that comes through Jesus and Jesus alone. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.